1: I'll talk a little bit here and see if this is okay. Is it working? Okay. So let's draw our minds here to the the word and may God speak now. So Lord help us. Long time ago two stonemasons were hard at work on a massive exhausting project, and they were at work laboring and Somebody asked them a question, both of them, what are you doing? And the first explained, frustration visible on his face, I've been chipping away at these huge stones and then wrestling with them and stacking them on top of one another to build this massive wall for what seems like forever and there is no end in sight. I hate it. And the second asked the same question, what are you doing? Paused, wiped the sweat off his brow, looked up at the sky and said, I am building a cathedral for the sake of the generations that will follow me. And I love it. Perhaps you've heard some version of that story. It's in a lot of motivational material these days. I went to Google it and look it up, see how exactly it's supposed to go. There's like a dozen ways it goes. All the details are different, but it always is making the same point. People, like us, are often helped with a larger perspective on the purpose of the work before us. Especially if that work is hard in some way and it brings us some degree of suffering. When when our work that's laid in front of us causes us hardship, we want to know why we should endure it. We want to know what the work is for, why it's necessary, what's the point of it all. Is it is it worth it? it is this cost that I'm going through paying off somehow? What, what's, what's the point of it? Such perspective of of kind of giving us an answer and showing us the larger picture. That, that perspective is helpful for all of us in work, and that's no less true for the type of hard work that we're seeing laid before us here in the book of 2 Timothy. The work that we've been calling gospel ministry is hard. It's the task God lays before all Christians In different ways according to our different circumstances and our different gifts, yeah. But we're all we're all called to to embrace it and and take part in it. And when we do, it's going to bring us suffering for sure. That's part of the deal. Consider this last week when we saw Paul describe all of us as being soldiers for Christ, not soldiers in that we are to be militant, but soldiers in that we are to suffer. It's part of the deal. This that we're engaged in, it brings us suffering and hardship for the sake of the gospel. I can't say what exactly that's going to mean for you in your particular situation. You thought about that all this last week, I think, right? Right? And as you considered it, God gave you understanding to it and in it, right? That was in the last week's passage, verse 7. It's going to mean something different for all of us. But in our passage this morning, God, through Paul, kindly does more than just call us to a task and tell us that suffering's normal. He gives us some of the larger perspective, the bigger picture about what this is about, what it's for, what's going on. He gives us something that should help us, give us perspective, and help us then endure. And so we're going to look at that this morning in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 13. I'm going to read it and then draw out three observations, three different pieces of the perspective. They're going to be of different length. The last one will be fairly short if you're watching time. Let me read the passage first, 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, has preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for, if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2. Here's the first piece of the perspective that we find here. Remember Jesus himself as he's revealed in the gospel remember Jesus himself as he's revealed in the gospel verse 8 begins with a command remember and this is a very frequent command throughout all of the Bible Old and New Testament both It's very often attached to something that God has done to protect or save or deliver his people and in all those places like here the command to remember is not really about something intellectual as if I've completely had something slip my mind and I need to like recall it. it, it's more along the lines of cultivate a habit of thinking about something. You, are, you already know it. You didn't actually completely forget it. But cultivate a habit of thinking. And it's important because what we regularly think about, what we ruminate on, we use, we use these words, right? We ruminate on what we stew on, what we perseverate over, what we play and replay and play and replay on the soundtrack of our minds, what kind of lives up there, that shapes us. And so here, we are to remember or to cultivate a habit of thinking about so as to be shaped by what? Remember Jesus Christ. Not, interestingly, Christ Jesus. That may seem like a small change, but if you were to comb through this whole book, every other time, it's Christ Jesus. And verse 10, he flips back to Christ Jesus again, but here, Jesus Christ, he fronts his personal name. That makes it just a little more personal. You could feel that when when we talk in our own language, if we talk about the president, our current president, Donald Trump, if we talk about President Donald Trump or Mr. President, if we front the title, it's formal. But if we talk about Donald, that's personal. And and he fronts Jesus here the only time he fronts Jesus here because he wants to make it more personal, less about the title. Cultivate a personal habit of thinking about Jesus, the man, not just his title, his office him himself. And there's a lot that's marvelous to consider about Jesus. We could, you could jot down Colossians 1 or Philippians 2. There's a, there's a lot there worth thinking about. But here, Paul mentions two things specifically that we should think about. That are at the heart of the gospel that Paul preaches, passes on to Timothy, and wants to pass on to us. Two things. This Jesus raised from the dead descended from David Jesus Christ who came out of the grave and Jesus Christ who is from the line of David two historical notes not just theories or teachings two historical notes that are at the heart of the gospel and these two things we're going to talk about them in a second here but they're important that he puts them there because as I say remember Jesus think about Jesus well what about him it is not uncommon to find somebody who's really fond of Jesus, some piece of Jesus. I'm really fond of Jesus and his, his great wisdom. I love Jesus and his compassion. His miracles are astonishing, yeah. I, I really like how he cares for people. I, I really like how he, he is, he's lowly and humble. Yeah, those are all true things. But Paul says, especially remember, he came out of the grave, and he's from David. Because those things mean important truths, important things that we should cultivate a habit of thinking about. He was a man, a real man like us, for sure. God, indeed, will come to that, but he was a man And he died on the cross, dead, dead. Three days buried. Gone. This is so familiar to us that we sometimes forget about it. He's just as human as me and as you. And he was dead. And then... He was alive again. And people touched him and ate with him and talked with him and walked with him for weeks. A human being, dead, and then out of the grave, alive again, (laughs) raised by God the Father. That says something astonishing. This is is Jesus who walked on the earth, who himself, yes, did miracles, yes, displayed great wisdom, yes, showed tremendous compassion. But more than that even, this is Jesus who claimed the right, the authority to command people. The right and the authority, the power to command demons and wind and waves. Who commanded people, turn your attention towards me. Listen to what I say. Give heed to it. And who received willingly worship. And then God killed him under curse on a tree. And brought him out alive again saying, that's all true. And then he raised him up bodily, the man Jesus, raised up out of the grave, raised up to heaven, where he took his seat at the right hand of the Father, enthroned, because he's from the line of David. That's what that piece is about. Long ago, God had promised to send a descendant of David to rule over his people, a king. And here he is. The real live human being who died and was raised again, who displayed the authority of God and is now seated at the right hand of God, reigning over all of this earth. This is Jesus, who is the Christ, the one that we are to remember. And this is a huge piece of perspective when you're staring at gospel ministry that is hard. Here's what happens often. We look at somebody that, that we're in a conversation with or some group of people that we feel some opposition from, the various aspects of gospel ministry, and what accidentally happens is it becomes me versus them or my theory against their theory or our teachings against theirs, and it becomes a combating of worldviews, and it becomes the world versus Christianity and Jesus isn't there. Accidentally, we get, we get caught up in something and, and we, we, we skip over and we miss the person of Jesus. Jesus risen and reigning for me. That relationship with Jesus, the person of Jesus, is that's where life is found. He is where life is found. There is no life in the doctrines, there is no life in the Christian faith, there is no life in the worldview. There's life in Jesus, He Himself. cultivating the habit of ruminating on, of rolling over my mind, of stewing on, of playing and replaying. Jesus, the man, was dead and then he rose again from the grave and he's ascended and he reigns in heaven for me. Brothers and sisters, that is the only thing, the only one, who will sustain your heart against the heat a person who is for you and is in communion with you and actually lives within you, Jesus. Only he is powerful enough and only he is sweet enough and beautiful enough and wise enough to give life to our hearts when we're facing everything from the world that threatens to rob life from our hearts. Remember Jesus, raised from the dead, David's line I think that at some point as as I was working through this, this verse here I thought this kind of feels a little bit obvious yeah that's why he says remember not learn you know this you know this And Paul's point to Timothy and to us is I just told you that you're a soldier and that's going to bring suffering. And I told you to set aside civilian affairs. And I told you to to closely obey. And I told you to work hard. Do you remember him? The lover of your soul. Who actually came out of the grave. This is historical fact. And who is in control of every moment of your life. Every bit of suffering is under his hand. That one is for you. Think about him. Remember him. Roll him around in there. He's Jesus. This is a Jesus-centered book. It's a Jesus-centered faith. It's a Jesus-centered life. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's communion with a person. It is not a religion or a faith system. And if we forget the person that's at the middle of it, the life evaporates. Remember Jesus. This one who was raised from the dead and who reigns now for us. That's the gospel that Paul preaches That's who he puts front and center. Jesus came out of the grave. Jesus reigns as king. The Fulfillment of all God's promises. And that got him in a lot of trouble. It's going to get us in trouble too. But he gives us more perspective in the second point. More perspective on what's the trouble for? What's the trouble worth? So the first first piece of perspective is don't forget the person person this is about Jesus simple think about him and second here's the second observation the second piece of perspective gospel ministry is necessary and certain to save God's chosen people Gospel ministry is necessary and certain to save God's chosen people. Gospel ministry may be costly and it will bring suffering, but this is the perspective that kind of puts it right for us. But it's necessary and it does bring glorious success. So we see in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, Paul acknowledges again the fact that he's committed to preaching this gospel and that it brings him suffering. He's chained up like a common criminal. But turn a phrase there I'm chained, but God's word isn't. And in fact, can't ever be, because it's God's word. And that prepares us, that little turn there prepares us for something pretty sweet, I think, in verse 10. God's word wins. You might say his gospel will prevail because he's the one doing the speaking and you can't muffle him. That's, that's the first bit of, of hope in verse 9, but there's more in verse 10. There's another important reason that Paul gives us here that should reassure and, and underline this, this idea that there is something successful going on here. Not just because God's speaking, but also because of the reality of election very important doctrine that just pops up and appears in verse 10. Therefore, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. The elect. There's the doctrine of election. Just drop it in there with that word. This means the chosen ones, the elect ones, like how in an election we choose somebody. Well, here it is. Spiritually speaking, there are all, all throughout the world among every tongue, tribe, and nation, in every race, in both genders, in all countries across all time, there are individual people chosen by God to be included in Christ and saved to life in him, called here the elect. Now, and you say a little bit about this, this doctrine here, so that we can understand what Paul and Timothy are talking about. But that being said, there's a whole lot that could be said about this doctrine. And I'm not going to say nearly half of it. But we've got to go a little bit into this. And if at the end of it, you're still not quite sure what you think about it, okay. If you want to talk more about it, I'd love to afterwards, but follow with me through this just a little bit. Shows up quite a bit in the Bible, this word elect or chosen, the idea of election, either in the word or in the 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 concept behind the word. You could jot down Ephesians one or John chapter six if you'd like, but we've already seen it here in Second Timothy. Second like chapter one, verse nine. We saw there how Christians can say, every Christian can say, God saved us says, and called us to a holy calling, or to clarify that, as we did back then. Saved us, summoned us to a distinct destiny. Holy, set apart, a distinct destiny. That's what he means there. Every Christian can say, I had a distinct destiny that he summoned me to, the destiny of being in Christ. I was chosen for it, elect. Not because of anything in me, the verse continues, not because of anything I did, it had nothing to do with me, not because of my works, but because of his own purpose and grace. God's own purpose, his own plan, his own choice that he made before the ages began. Eternity past. There's my destiny. Every Christian can say that. Unbeknownst to me, I had no idea. But I was chosen by God to be an object of his grace in ages past. That had nothing to do with me. That's the doctrine of election right there in verse 9. Never uses the word, but he explains it. So from before time began, there is an elect people from every slice of life everywhere, and we have no way of knowing or predicting who they are. We have no idea. We're not supposed to. But it's there, and God's pursuit of those people Is God's purpose and plan that is unstoppable, and he successfully accomplishes it. There's the doctrine of election. Again, a lot more that could be said, but what's worth noting here this morning is that Paul doesn't teach it or explain it. He just says it. He drops it in, assumed, and reasons from it. Without explaining it, he draws some other conclusion, some really helpful piece of perspective that is strong motivation to engage in costly ministry. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Everything. Imprisonment here, but we could walk back through the catalog of Paul's hardships, his Shipwreck and beating and stoned and imprisoned and living in poverty and living on the edge of society, you know, of low esteem. And he's just got all kinds of difficulties that he could look back over his life and say, Everything, I endure all of that for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain the salvation that I already have, but they don't yet have. They may obtain the salary. I thought you just said that, that what election was about was a destiny that they would be saved. It is. It is. That they would be saved in the one and only way that anybody ever is saved. By hearing the gospel and trusting Jesus. By hearing and believing. So God who, who determined a destiny, sure, yeah, but he also included a means to that destiny. That his word would go out and it would bump into people and they would hear and believe and obtain salvation. So given that God's word is not able to be chained and given that there is this, this Doctrine of election, then human gospel ministry, my ministry, my suffering, my hard, difficult ministry is the is the link in the chain between the two that connects them and and accomplishes the, the plan of God to draw his people into glory with him. That's what's going on. So Paul knows. I'm going to pull into a town and I'm going to preach to a crowd in a synagogue or on a street somewhere and I don't know how they're going to respond. Maybe they'll be interested, maybe they won't be. Maybe they'll be angry, maybe they'll be bored. I I don't know. But I'm going to speak to all of them and I'm going to say to all of them, because this is true, whoever hears this, if Anyone comes to Jesus and trusts him, you will be saved. Because that's true. Whoever hears and whoever comes will be saved. And I don't know, maybe somebody will hear that and say, Huh. Most won't, but maybe someone will hear that and say, huh, and, and it'll strike them in a different way, and they'll, they'll think, wait a minute, saved, and they'll begin to engage with that, and they'll think about sin, and they'll think about forgiveness, and they'll think about life, and they'll think about glory, and other people say, who needs that, and throw it away? Somebody in that crowd, perhaps, maybe, I don't know, somebody may be elect, so I'll endure everything for them. Or in the next town. Or in the next town. I don't know. But I do know God's word is not chained. And I do know they're out there somewhere. And I do know that the peace that connects the two, the necessary and certainly successful peace that connects the two, is me speaking. And so I'm going to keep going and keep speaking and enduring everything for their sake. When I was young, my mom made a little game for young kids to play at parties and at gatherings, birthday parties, that kind of thing. She took a whole bunch of sand and mixed some coins into it and then put it in a container and let the kids rummage around it and pull up the coins. And the vast majority of them were pennies. And eventually all my friends got tired of filtering through the sand and pulling up a penny, and then another one pulling up a penny said, Oh, that's nice, a couple pennies. But I knew that there was also a half dollar in there somewhere. because she was my mom and she'd made the mix at my house. I had a different perspective on what was in there. And I never got tired of looking. The pennies, sure, pennies are nice, an occasional nickel, but there's a 50-cent piece in here somewhere. I know it. And so I kept after it. Not because I knew where it was, but because I knew that it was. We look at a world that, if we're honest, a whole bunch of the time, gospel ministry seems fruitless, pointless, and hard. Nobody believes this. Everybody doesn't like me. And I haven't seen anybody become a Christian in who knows how long. Fruitless, pointless, and hard. Hard. Is that that your experience with ministry? Is that your experience with evangelism? Is that your experience with with service and sacrifice for other people? That it doesn't actually seem to produce much fruit and doesn't seem to actually change the world that much. It's kind of fruitless, kind of pointless, and pretty hard, frankly. And what Paul wants to drop into your lap and wants you to take with you as a perspective into your workplace, into your classrooms, into your neighborhood, you don't know who, but you know that there is a people out there. And it is not up to you to persuade them. God's in pursuit, and God's word's not chained. So the faithful speaking of his word and leaving the results to him is certain to succeed as he defines success. That is relieving, and that is good news. There's a perspective there that is more than just suck it up and keep soldiering on. You're actually building a cathedral. Even if all you can see right now is the wall, it's a part of building the church, in which others will draw in to be to be joined to God in, in great glory. Who they'll be drawn into the worship and the enjoyment of Him, along with you and with Him. You're about something larger that is necessary and is certain of success. Not because we're clever enough and powerful enough, but because he is. This is a great and grand work that we are engaged in, and when it seems most pointless and most fruitless and most hard, remember Jesus, and remember that God's word is not chained and that the elect are out And Thirdly, faithful endurance is necessary for a very great reward. Faithful endurance is necessary for a very great reward. So the perspective here on this is that it pays off to you and I personally too. This is verses 11 to 13. And probably in your Bible, it's typeset to show that it's a, a separate standalone saying or maybe even a hymn that Paul's kind of dropped in here because it fits. You might say that if we're thinking about verses 9 and 10, we're thinking about, I endure for the sake of others. And this one is saying, I endure for me. It pays off for me. And that's not wrong. It's actually in the Bible right here and put here before us so that we'll see it and be motivated by it. Verse 11, if we died with him, looking backwards, we will also live with him. They're all built the same here, these statements, right? If... Then, if we died with him, what what happened when you, Christian, when you died with Christ? Well, that was death, that was dying, that was dying to myself, that was taking up my cross daily, that was saying goodbye to my life. Uh Uh-huh, yes. And what happened after that? Well, this Jesus, he was raised from the grave and you with him were raised to new life. You found life after that, right? Yeah. Well, verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, kind of the reality we're facing, we endure everything for the sake of the elect, but also if we endure, if we face all this and embrace it and walk into it, I'm going to be taking on a bunch of hardship. I'll be taking on a bunch of difficulty. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. And you will reign with him. Can you imagine that? Stop and think about that. It is not hard to imagine the hardship on the, the front end. It is not hard to imagine what the endure looks like. Can you imagine what it means to reign with Christ? You're just a little old human being. You are an eternal being made in the image of God, royal. And what he means for you and what he will bring to you is a throne. Not his throne, a little throne, but a throne, a crown, if you will. There is only one king, but you're made to be a prince or a princess. You're made to rule with him, to reign over the creation with him. Higher than all the angelic beings and higher than all the creatures and higher than all all of the, the inanimate objects in this creation, you are to reign with Christ. What we will be at some point in the future when we are transformed, we are carried into heaven and changed, we will be astonishingly glorious. Somehow or another, I can't imagine it, can you? Somehow or another, we will be arrayed as, as a vast, powerful, glorious people with him and attired in shining garments and bestowed with power. I don't know how or what. this is the work that God first made for us back in Genesis in the very beginning I give you the creation man woman I give you the creation to rule over it and we wrecked it and what God has done now is he has redeemed the people us he's redeemed us and caused us to die with Christ and raise us to life and he has said I am preparing you even now to reign with me as you always should have in glory at my side beneath my and in my power but actually exercising authority. Little old you. I'm I'm telling you, I don't really know what that means. But I think it's supposed to mean something awesome. It's not only if we endure, we'll get there. If we endure, we will reign with him. There is some great reward promised to you there on the other side of endurance, on the other side of this participation with him in his ministry here and now. Don't say no to that. Because you'll miss the rain. We've got to face the reality at the end of that verse. If we deny him, He also will deny us. Hmm. Not sure I like that. Let's skip on. Uh, Hold on. That's written there too. And noting, this is actually a standalone saying. That means that it came from the church more broadly than Paul brought it in here. This is the Christian church saying this, recognizing. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Because there's a reality to be faced here. Jesus said this all the time. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. Jesus said that often. It's recorded for us in Matthew, for instance. What do we do with that? Well, before I talk about that, let me also read the next phrase. Further muddy the waters if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself is that a contradiction i thought you said he will deny us but now that he says he remains faithful what what what's what what two different things here in back to back verses placed right next to each other because they're often right next to each in human life There's a difference between, I mean, different words, you see them in English or different words in Greek, there are different concepts here. There's a difference between deny and faithless. Where's the line? I don't know. So get away from the line. That's the point. There's a difference, though, between deny and faithless. It looks something like in its extremities, on its extremities, it looks something like deny him, no, I'm not with that. But that sounds a lot like what Peter said on the night that Jesus was betrayed. But we know actually that was just faithlessness because Peter came back. It's tricky to tell, isn't it? So get away from the line. And maybe here's something that can move you away from the line. And it's possible that for some of us this morning, this piece right here might be a greater reward, a greater blessing to you than the idea of reigning with him. Because something about the character of our Lord just jumps out of this here at the end. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The reality is that if Jesus lives in you, he keeps you. You don't keep yourself. Thank God. If Jesus lives in you, he keeps you. Because he can't deny himself. He can't walk away from himself. If you're his, you're his. And in your faithlessness, in your moments of... Every one of us, right? Every one of us can can think back... Okay, like a soldier, don't don't get entangled in civilian affairs. I've done that. Follow all the rules. I've I've broken the rules. Work hard. I've been lazy. Every one of us can walk back and say, I have failed this. I I have turned away from this. I have been faithless in this. Oh, God. And the good news is that in the moments of our faithlessness, when we are smoldering wicks, when we are bruised reeds, the Lord himself says, let me help you and uphold you. And in your faithlessness, I'm going to draw near to you and uphold and lift up you, my hurt one, you, my weak one, you, my failing one. Our our steadfastness in Christ does not actually depend on our steadfastness. It depends on his, and that's good news. And maybe you, in the moment right now, maybe you find yourself, I've been getting hammered by everything you've been saying in this book. Faithful gospel ministry, enduring suffering, sharing. I don't do any of that. I am a total failure. Maybe. And then here's the Lord who says, in your faithlessness, I'll be faithful to you. How can I know that? Maybe I'm denying him. Well, get away from the line. See his kindness. See see his faithfulness to you and repent. Repent. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, not not, not to in- enable further turning away. It's, it's meant to say, here's me, look at me, see my character, see my faithfulness to you. Come. So faithless one. Come. Everyone who comes finds him faithful. Come. Turn back. Is there gray there at the end between deny him and be faithless? Yeah, yeah, there is. So clear it all up and turn back. And what you find there is the God who remains faithful and cannot deny himself. This is great reward and maybe even greater than a promised future reign. The present and faithful Lord who is of such a nature that he will not abandon you in your weakness and in your frailty and even in your failing. The king we serve, this Jesus that we remember, this Lord who is in pursuit of his people, is omnipotent and he reigns and he accomplishes his purposes and he is faithful and gentle and near. Even to us when we lose all perspective and fail. I think that's good news. And maybe particularly for you, that's what you need to think about. Come to him. Come back to him. Lay yourself in front of him. He is good. He can be trusted. Remember that about Jesus too. Let me pray. Lord, nothing that we've seen here today makes the task any easier in itself. But will you for each of us here this morning give us some new view of it? Some new view of the larger picture, some perspective. Some of us get too focused on the work and forget you. Some of us lose heart in the the difficulty of it. And some of us are just hopeless in our failure. So will you please, Father, Son, and Spirit, draw near to your people now and strengthen our hands and, and build us up in whatever way is most needed now. If there are issues here, ideas here that are confusing to us or that, that are somehow unsettling, sort them out, please, for us. Produce further conversation. Build, build up your people and knowledge. Do that, please but encourage us, in particular, encourage us. You are good. Thank you for letting us be a part of your work. Thank you for empowering it. Thank you for making it succeed. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.